before we jump into this conversation, just a quick word of thanks to the good folks over at the Quilting Nook. Without your support and encouragement, projects like this wouldn't be possible. Are you starting to dream about warmer days ahead like I am? Let me tell you what's happening this June. For the first time ever, me and my good friend Heidi Parks are going to be co-teaching a class at Madeline Island School of the Arts on an island in the middle of Lake Superior. The course is called Sewing in Place, and we're going to explore together how you can incorporate landscape and experiences while you travel into textiles. This is something both Heidi and I love to do. So if that sounds good to you, and you like the idea of going on hikes in your free time, watching the water lap up on the beaches, you might want to join us. I'll put a link down in the show notes for more information. And of course, if you got more questions, you know where to find me. I really do enjoy reading what you think about this show. For example, take a look at this one from Robin O. Mayberry, who said that if you're an artist, a sewist, a lover of things slow and gentle, or fond of meaningful conversation, please don't miss this podcast. There's a quality of genuine humanness that makes these conversations so relatable that I feel like I'm stitching along with friends. If you're feeling like Robin's feeling, please leave me a review. It is the best way for folks to discover what's happening here on Seamside. Thank you very much. You're listening to Seamside, where we explore the inner work of textiles. I'm your host, Zach Foster, and each episode I sit down and sew with a different artist, and we talk about what working with cloth has taught us about being human. I hope you enjoy. Victoria Gertenbach and I have been in each other's outer orbit for a number of years now. I've long admired the tones and textures that she can achieve in her thoughtful and slow-stitch work. In this chat, we talk about how living among old rustic barns in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania has helped to shape her creative path. How we as artists can often feel the squeeze when it comes to representing ourselves and our work on social media. And at the very end, Victoria takes us on a wild word association ride that will certainly help you get inside her creative process and might even unlock something in your own. I hope you enjoy. Victoria, thank you so much for meeting with me today. Thank you very much for having me, Zach. I'm happy to be here. So paint the scene for us. Where are you right now? I'm looking out my backyard, and there's a farm field behind me and a farm. And earlier today, we had flocks of snow geese flying overhead. Migrating geese always add a certain sense of a season, doesn't it? It does. Absolutely. Gives you hope that winter's almost over and... Oh, yeah, we got crocuses and daffodils here in North Carolina, too. Oh, we don't have any daffodils yet, but... And so, Victoria, what have you brought to sew on today? I am sewing on a little talisman. I've got a, a hard shell clam fragment and um, stitching some fabric on it. I'm going to make something special out of it. Beautiful. I look forward to seeing it. And for folks that are listening, we'll post pictures of that on the website if you want to take a closer look. Now, you weren't born in Lancaster County, but you've spent most of your life there. For for folks that aren't familiar with the place, can you kind of paint a scene for us? What is what is the area like? What is it known for? Uh, well, it's known for its large Amish population. 
Um, but there's, uh, I think some people have the misinformed idea that it's all farms and country and Amish and it isn't. I've had people think that I was Amish just because I'm from this area. But it's not necessarily the city or the suburbs of the county that your work draws so much inspiration from, is it? No, it's the rural area that I live in. I'm surrounded, the development is surrounded by farm fields and a hop, skip and a jump from my backyard. There's the little town and the really sleepy train goes through it and you can hear the train whistle in the morning as it goes by. And So many of the pictures I've seen you share before, Victoria, are images of these massive capacious barns and rolling landscapes and, and, and just a lot of sky, right? And that has found a way into your work. Yes, very much so. What is it about those barns? Uh, it was about 13 years ago, and I went through a creative dry spell. I was worried about our family finances. I was worried about my husband's job security. I was worried if we, it felt like we were living paycheck to paycheck. I was mourning the loss of some people that I loved. And I just, everything was just this perfect storm of depression and, um, not clinical depression, but I mean, maybe I was clinically depressed. I don't know, but just depression and feeling disconnected from everything that I had been making up to that point, disconnected from all my inspiration. And so as we'd be traveling around, going to here to there, my husband would be driving and I'd be sitting in the passenger seat, just staring out the window, looking at all the barns and the barns are all around. I'd always thought they were beautiful, but now I'm looking at them and I felt like they could feel my sadness and I could feel their sadness. There was something about these big old barns, especially the ones that are in states of disrepair that felt broken and they felt lonely. And that's how I felt. I felt broken and lonely. And over a period of a few months, I just started to have this rapport with them. They soothed me and they comforted me and they made me feel not alone. And I know that's strange because it's a inanimate object, um, but that's how they made me feel. And I started to think about how many years they they were here. There used to be a beautiful barn we would go to in, in state game lands behind where we live. And it was built in the 1700s. Unfortunately, they tore it down. And just how old they were and that they were still standing and the stories that they held. I thought about the people that lived there at one time and the children that they raised and the work that they did. And I thought about the births that these farms saw and the deaths that they saw and war and marriage and love and everything. So when I looked at these worn and weathered barns that were so old and still standing and had so many stories in them, they made me look at life completely different. And so what I was feeling now wasn't something to run from. It was something to embrace. My own brokenness was something to embrace. My own sadness, my own hopes and dreams and fears, all of it was life. That's what these barns taught me. And then I started to look at them more visually and I started to notice their shapes 
and their lines and their textures and their colors. And I saw quilts. And all of a sudden, everywhere I looked from the rolling farm fields that had just been plowed and the lines in them to, you know, these open black windows on a white barn and um, the shapes of the doors. And oh, my gosh, my mind just exploded with quilts everywhere, quilts. And then the stories that I could imagine of the women that had raised families and the types of quilts that they would have had to make when they went through tough times, when they were worried about finances, when they didn't have a whole lot coming in, when their husband lost their job or maybe was killed in a war or something, who knows? And all of a sudden, you know, they've got to use whatever they have on hand and they have to make quilts that were utilitarian and, and keep their family warm. And so all of that fed into my imagination and inspiration. And, and then, I had more ideas than I knew what to do with at that point. So I, I went from complete drought to complete feast. And Victoria, it's that feast that we want to share with you here over the, the next several minutes. I, I myself was poking around a barn yesterday here on the campus at John C. Campbell Folk School. I saw your beautiful pictures. It was a huge barn. And I feel like I recognize the brokenness you're talking about. One of the things I think about too is, is is as makers we can walk into a space like a barn or even an old house it doesn't have to be a barn an old building something that was crafted by hands and we see something of what we do in our own work magnified to the scale of a building and I wonder at least part of the the sadness the the somberness I might describe it as maybe part of the somberness that I feel walking into an old barn like that is looking around a, an interior space that was entirely crafted by somebody's hands or by the hands of a community. And I wonder when is the last time I've been in a space like that? That's interesting. I never really thought about that. I think because I still get to see barns being built around here. Um, the Amish put up barns in a day. And if a barn, if an Amish barn needs to be built, you know, maybe for a new, a new married couple, or if one burns down or got knocked down or something, they'll come out the whole community and in a day, they'll have the entire barn framed and all by hand. It's amazing. But there is something sacred in, in the whole building of, of, of anything that's meant to house and take care of other living things or their harvest and so you're living in Lancaster County Pennsylvania with all these barns and rolling hills and everything how did that then help you switch from what you were doing to what you're doing now well previously what I was doing I was you know picking up different things that I was interested in so I liked mid-century modern I like sci-fi fiction, B-movies. I did some um, red work um, on the machine, but red work illustrations of uh, vintage 1950s school children that were being abducted by alien spaceships. And so, and this, you know, because that was just stuff that I liked, and so I played with that. And then when I went through that dry spell, I think... I needed, I needed something more than like. I needed to be in love. 
And I didn't know what I was in love with outside of my children and my husband. But I mean, as far as inspiration goes, and I needed something that I felt connected to. When I started to connect to the landscape around me, my work changed because it came, uh, it became more personal. My work went from something that was external to something that was internal. I was no longer trying to look outward, but I was looking, well, I don't know if that makes sense, because I'm obviously looking outward at the barns, but I feel so connected to them. I feel, well, well I mentioned this during the, the softball. It was the idea of taking the advice that writers are given, write about what you know. If you want to be more authentic, write about what you know. And that's what changed. I went from being inspired by things that I liked but didn't know to being inspired by things that I knew. I absorb the land around me to such a degree it is inside of me. So when I'm creating from that place, I'm not just inspired on an outwardly level. Uh, it's coming from within. I've absorbed it. I'm processing it, I'm channeling it, I'm putting it back out. I don't know how else to describe that process. And I would I would advise anybody if they're struggling with their creativity to take that advice that they give writers. You know, what is it that you know? What is something that you feel on a really deep level? What's important to you? And, and maybe work from there. I think in social media, it's can be very hard to find your own voice sometimes. I know that it's, you know, even now, it's, it's very hard to look at all the incredible stimulation that we're exposed to and not to want to say, oh, let me try that, let me try that, let me try that. And that's great when you're beginning. I really, I think that's great when you're beginning because it can help you weed out what doesn't work and figure out what does work, and then maybe you can start to cobble those things together and you can start to find your own unique voice and path. But at some point, we need to really look within ourselves and um, trust that we've got something unique to say. And that's a topic I really want to circle back around here in just a few minutes with you, Victoria, is how we cultivate our own voice in the middle of all the noise that surrounds us. One thing that I'm curious about, though, I, I think it's fair to say that all creative people have dry spells. I think we can make it mm, oh yeah. that blanket of a statement. I remember my last big dry spell would have been 2016. There was a lot going on in the political situation here in the United States. And I just gave up sewing for mm. almost a year. Didn't sew a single thing. And I remember I, one night I was in bed and I was reading this essay by Barbara Kingsolver, who, you know, if anybody ever asked me, like, who are you going to have over at a dinner party? You can have anybody you want. Uh -huh. Barbara Kingsolver is <laughs> always at. at the table. <laughs> yes. Um, she wrote this essay right after 9-11. And the heart of the essay was that the, the American flag, any flag, doesn't belong to one political party only, that it belongs to everybody that lives in that place. And I was like, amen, Barbara, you're right. And I hopped on my little smartphone and I went to that 
online warehouse where everybody goes, and I almost bought an American flag. And right before I clicked that buy now button, it's like a little light bulb went off in my head. I said, Zach, you know how to sew. Mm-hmm. Sew a flag. Just do something. Just sew a flag. And I was like, oh, okay. So no polyester flags for me. I went over to my Chester drawers. I got out my red, white, and blue fabric. And I figured out how to do French seams. And I figured out how to sew stars on two sides of a piece of fabric and all kinds of stuff. And that's what got me back into the flow of things. This one project, just just taking some kind of an action, some kind of a forward step. So when folks have dry spells, there are multiple inroads to, in my opinion, from what I've heard folks, one of them is connecting to landscape and going deep like that, like you're saying. Another one is just trying something, just picking up some fabric and seeing what's happening. And if, if it happens for you that day, then great. If it doesn't happen for you that day, don't beat yourself up over it. Just try again the next day. Because one of these days, the juice comes back. Absolutely. And I still go through dry spells. I've always gone through dry spells. That one was just a particularly long and frightening dry spell. But normally, I mean, I would go through ones. They might last a few days to a week or so. And where I think I, I've completely dried up. I don't have the, I don't have an original thought. I don't have an original idea. I don't feel it. I'm, what am I going to do? And I walk around the house and I'm like moaning and groaning. <laughs> and my husband's like, you'll be fine. You always get this way. Well, this one's different. <laughs> I don't know how but, people live with artists. You know what I mean, Victoria? I, don't... <laughs> I know. It must be very difficult. Um, but like what you said, do something. And so I'll find like even just cleaning my studio. Um, the act of moving things around and having to pick up things and, or just put a piece of cloth up on your board and, you know, maybe it'll give you an idea, just different things. And yeah, eventually hang in there. Even long creative dry spills will eventually get better and maybe something great will come out of it. Right. Because we are innately creative people as a species. We make things. It's just what we do. We can't deny it. No. Can't run away from it. Um, I was listening to an article in the Atlantic earlier today, and it was comparing Eastern art and Western art. And I think you could extrapolate to say an Eastern way of living versus a Western life view. And that is, you know, in the West, a lot of times when we think about the beginning of the artistic practice, we think of either a, a blank page if you're a writer, a blank canvas if you're a painter. Mm-hmm. The person sharing this was showing an example of a jade Buddha. And he says, in the East, when we think about the beginning of the creative process, we start with the block of jade. And we say, the Buddha's already in there. We just got to carve everything away. It was a subtle shift for me. But it's this idea that, oh, as an artist, I just need to release something that already exists in the universe. I'm not trying to create something out of thin air. And I know that's a thought that gave me a lot of comfort and helped take the the pressure off of creating. Yes, I agree 100%. I could be wrong, but I think Michelangelo said something about, like David was already in that block of marble. I think that when we get creative inspiration, like I don't think that I thought of it. I think it was something that I was receptive to, something that was 
in the universal space and I tuned into it. And if I don't tune into it, somebody else is going to tune into it. And at the same time, have you ever noticed how sometimes you're doing something and somebody else has the same idea at the same time? It kind of seems, and you're both starting something. Again, I think we're just all picking up whatever's out there, what wants to be born, and our job is to birth it the best that that we have the ability to do so. You know that Liz Gilbert story in um, Big Magic, don't you, where she had this idea for a novel about, I want to say, a female botanist going to study in the Amazon, and she really wanted to write this novel. She got started. She kind of let it marinate for a bit, and as can happen sometimes when you don't touch a creative project, well, she just lost interest, and time got away from her, and so year two passed. And she's at some conference and she meets the writer Ann Patchett and they really hit it off. And they're like, oh, this is so nice talking to you. Tell me what you're working on. Ann Patchett says, well, I'm writing this novel about this female botanist who goes down to the Amazon. Yeah, (laughs) I do remember reading about that. (laughs) That was my story. That was my, well, not even mine, right? Like we don't own the ideas. Right, we don't own it. We don't own it. They just lied on us for a while. Mm -hmm. So if anybody out there is listening, feeling like they got to come up with something original, I hate to break it to you. Ain't nothing new under the sun. I think one of the important jobs of an of being an artist is allowing yourself to just sit and stare into space or lay there with your eyes closed and just, I've got to do that in order to see and understand what it is I'm supposed to make. It's a lot of just kind of listening and visualizing but not visualizing like I've got to think of what to do, but just relax. I guess it's a meditative thing. You just sort of relax and close your eyes and listen and see what comes into your brain. And do you ever find that to be true? 100%. That it's not so much what I see with my mind's eye that I'm creating, but what I see with my physical eyes happening in front of me. And then how can I use my human intelligence to to amplify that or to finesse it. Makes me think of my buddy Luke Haynes. He says 50% of the time he spends in the studio is him just sitting there staring at a quilt. Yeah, yes, (laughs) absolutely. That's it. it. (laughs) We're not always, it may look like we're not hard at work, but we're doing the work. Listening is part of the work. Absolutely. Let's circle back for a second, Victoria, because I'm curious. You said at the beginning of your dry spell, you rediscovered Barnes. And you felt like the barns were containers or, or were mirrors of the own, your own sadness that you were feeling and your own kind of loneliness that you're feeling. Do you still feel that way when you look at a barn? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but what they taught, taught me, what I've learned from them is that that's not a weakness. That's a strength. That they have been broken and they've been abandoned at times and they've been lonely and they've gone through all these rough parts. And yet they stand with such dignity and such beauty. And it made me be more tender and kind with my own feelings. And so a lot of times what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to honor the beauty in that brokenness, the beauty in that loneliness that that isn't something to be ashamed of. It isn't something to feel uh, less than because you have those feelings. It's it's part of the human experience. 
And we live in a world where we're not supposed to have those feelings and experiences and we're supposed to be bright and shiny. And I, I want people to know it, that it's not about wallowing in your sadness. It's not about feeling sorry for yourself. It's about saying that the human experience is, is something beautiful. Even when it is broken, even when it is lonely, it's beautiful. And, um, I don't know if that makes sense, but I think, I think that's why I gravitate towards wanting to use cloth that's stained, that's old, that has a history, that has a story. I don't want the shiny. I don't want the new. I want the imperfect. I want the flawed because as humans, we're flawed. And there's the, I think it's the Japanese art, I'm not sure, of kintsugi, um, where they fill in the cracks of the pottery with um, gold. And they're honoring that crack. They're not trying to cover it up. It's, it's something beautiful. And like Japanese boro, um, we, we now treasure. We think it's beautiful. This was ragged peasant cloth. Um, that they had to patch because they couldn't afford to go out and buy cloth. Cloth was so precious. They would mend this over and over and over again, and at the time it had no value. And now we see the beauty in it because I think that when you look at it, you can see the hands that touched it. I, I love that image of that broken Japanese pottery where because there are ways to mend pottery, where it's almost invisible, the mend you don't even see. It's almost as good as new. But that's not what Kintsugi is all about. That's saying we're going to take this thing that happened to this object and we're going to fix it. We're going to get back to usable condition. We're going to use a precious metal to do it, but we're going to let you know that it happened. And I think yes. that if we could do that with ourselves, yes, treat ourselves like that, it would go a long way. I mean, it makes me think that for a long time, and you might have heard me tell this about myself, but um, it bears repeating, that for a long time, I felt like I was too sensitive of a person. You know, I would Aww. take things too personally. I would tear up, you know, just watching the news at night or, or whatnot. And I tried to find ways to like toughen up a little bit, you know, and not wear my heart on my sleeve so much. But I came to realize, thankfully, before I got too hard-hearted about things, I came to realize that that same sensitivity that flares up in those moments where maybe I wish it, it wouldn't, uh, is the same sensitivity that when I'm in the studio allows me to look at two colors or two pieces of fabric and notice subtle differences, why one works and one doesn't, or how one can work better. And if I didn't have that sensitive eye and that sensitive heart, I don't know if I could make the work that I make. When I was able to frame it like that for myself, all of a sudden, what was at one time maybe a crack in my pottery mm -hmm. now is something I'm proud of. And that's it exactly. That's what those barns were kind of helping me show that we spend so much energy trying to cover up our cracks and trying to cover up our flaws. To go back to that time where I was really feeling like I don't know who I am anymore. I don't know what I have to say. 
I'm, I'm lonely. Um, I, I miss my father. I miss a friendship that fell apart. I'm scared because my husband's job security isn't what I'd like it to be. I don't, am not bringing in a lot of income myself. Are we going to be okay? What's life going to be like down the road? All this just like wearing me down. And there I am looking at these barns and seeing them really in states of serious disrepair, yet still standing and knowing their history. And they just, I mean, I must sound crazy to some people, but they just filled me with so much comfort and hope and grace and the ability to see that all the things that I was worried about were really just, to use cloth as a metaphor, this this was the cloth of my life. And all these things that I thought were things to worry about and feel bad about and what are we going to do and woe is me, all of a sudden became milestones and it was our life. And that was something to be celebrated. It is something to be celebrated because the alternative is, the alternative to existence is non-existence. Yes. Yeah. Right? I'm glad to exist. Right. I'm glad to exist. Even on the rough days. Even on the rough days. Yep. Even on the rough days. And that's not a Pollyannish view. That's not like, oh boy, it's a rough day. La, 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 la. <laughs> I mean, I, when I have a rough day, I feel it. You know, and I think that's part of being a sensitive person. You, you feel it. It hurts. Victoria, what if we switch gears a little bit and let's talk about what are some of your favorite fabrics to work with? You know, you've talked about liking to work with stained and already used fabric. Fabric that's already had a lifetime. What are some of your fabrics, favorite fabrics to use? When I first started, um, down this path of being inspired by the countryside. It hadn't really occurred to me yet to use old fabrics. Um, and when I went fabric shopping, it was shop cottons. There was a, a depth to it and a beauty to it because of the way it's woven and there were flaws and imperfections and some of the selvages sometimes were rough and that's what I really gravitated towards. But my favorite fabrics to work with currently are um, the vintage grain sacks. I really prefer the thin ones over the thick ones. Um, white with little bits of stains from where it had mold on it, maybe, or it makes this kind of really pretty speckled effect. And, and I like that because it is reminiscent of the dirt on the barns and old cloth is my favorite cloth now. So anything that's got an age and a history and a patina and a story in it, I think cloth holds memory. I know a lot of us feel that way, and so I, I want to use that. Can you say more about cloth having a memory and what that means to you? You look at cloth, and I this might be a little bit different direction than what you were asking, and so I'll try and circle back. But having worked in other mediums before, there's something about cloth that's different from all the other mediums because we're introduced to cloth from the day that we're born. Nobody when we're born is putting a paintbrush in our hand and giving us a canvas or, you know, a pair of scissors or anything, but they're wrapping us in cloth. And so the ability to work with cloth is unlike anything else that I've experienced. 
whenever I would try and um, work with, say, paint and, 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 and color in paint and things like that, I, I felt disconnected from it. Color theory was really hard for me to grasp when I was trying to paint. And earlier you said something about being sensitive and how you could put one piece of cloth up and next to another and you can just see how one's gonna, is gonna work better. You can feel it. It's something. In, and that's what I found with cloth too. And when I work with cloth, all of a sudden color is very in, intuitive. I understand it immensely. I know exactly how to put color together when I'm working in cloth, but I can't do it very well and with confidence when I'm working in any other medium, whether it's torn bits of paper or whether it's paint, but something about cloth. And I think about that, how from the moment we're born, we're wrapped in cloth, we're swaddled in cloth, we're given cloth blankets. One of my earliest memories is feeling the, the like silky trim on the blanket. It, it was like a wool blanket with some silky trim on it and just rubbing my finger across it as a child and feeling how the temperature of it was different than the temperature of the rest of the blanket. It was cooler and it was, of course, felt different. And Tell me again your question. That cloth has memory. Cloth has memory. Okay. Cloth has memory. How can it not have memory? Because we use it, we sit on it, we wrap ourselves on it, we dry ourselves off with it, we we cover ourselves. When when I'm taking apart a quilt, which I don't do a whole lot, but when when I feel that it served its life and it's old and and I want to give it a new breath of life, I'll I'll dissect it. And I'm I'm unpicking stitches that somebody carefully put in and I'm thinking about them. I'm thinking how many women worked on this? What was their life like? These tiny little stitches and, and I'm talking to them and I'm I'm hoping that they are, you know, in sync with me and they're cool with what I'm doing. And when I look at these the vintage grain sacks and I see you know, sometimes there's bits of grain still in them. And I think about, you know, what part of the farm were they on and what was it used for and um, who mended it. When I got all these these heavy-duty feed sacks over the summer that somebody gifted me that were heavily mended, the love that went into patching these things and the creativity that went into patching them. Some are doing it in swirls and other are doing it in reverse applique and um, all of that has stories and, and how they're stained. And was this a mud stain? Was this an oil stain? Um, I don't know, but it ha there was one day where this piece of cloth was somewhere being used and something spilled on it and it got stained. And I'm just recognizing it's got a past and it's got a history. And, and I love that. And I think that when you use those materials, it gives the work an extra layer of meaning. And I don't think that all work would lend itself to that. I understand why some people would want to work with very new fabric. And, you know, if you're going for a very modern, clean, sharp aesthetic, I can understand wanting the, but, but I'm not going for that. When I used to still use more commercial fabric, and I was trying when I, when I first started to get inspired by the barns and I, I'd look at the, you know, the different patinas on say a white barn, which is my favorite and where the paint was peeling off the way that the light hit it and, um, the shadows on it. And I, I wanted to find a fabric that would 
recreate that. And so when I saw Moda Grunge, I thought, this will do it. And I got a whole bunch of Moda Grunge. And when I put it together, it didn't do it. It was, it just was too new and I couldn't communicate what I wanted to communicate. And, but when I started working with the old stained feed sacks, ah, there it was. There was this beautiful patina and it, it was like magic. And then knowing that it also was connected to the same places that I'm inspired by. Wow. That just is it's, it's great. We got in a conversation on the Quilty Nook earlier this week, and we were talking about um, the artist Rauschenberg, who made his famous bed quilt painting. Mm -hmm. You know, he painted on mm -hmm. a quilt itself. Mm -hmm. And we got to talk about whether that was, whether old quilts were more abstract than new quilts. And I don't know where I land on this, but the, because I could see, for example, Old quilts have all these stories, all these associations, all these symbols built into them. Therefore, they are much more than just something to keep you warm. Hence, they have that layer of abstraction to them. But the new quilts with new fabric don't have any of those stories, don't have any of those experiences. They're just kind of like a fresh slate. And something about that purity or that unformedness also feels very abstract to me. I think about so much of so much about memory with this current project I'm working on here at the residency at the folk school because I'm calling it the homecoming series. It's three quilts that are autobiographical to me. So the first quilt is thinking about how excited I was to move to New York City, leaving North Carolina, moving to New York in 2008. The middle quilt are those moments where I'd been in New York for a while, but the needle started to shift and I started feeling a certain kind of lonesomeness or a certain draw to go back home and the last quilt in the series is the homecoming quilt so it's looking forward looking down the road not too much further down the road about uh when it comes time to to move back home to north carolina and the basis of these three quilts are three other vintage quilt tops that all found their way to me in different ways and i've been deconstructing those quilt tops into into regions, into blocks, into patches on occasion. A layer that's adding for me to this project is that even though this is an autobiographical quilt, this is my experience of one, choosing to leave home, and then two, choosing to come back. Even though this is my specific life experience, I'm not the only person living this life. I'm not the only person who's had similar decisions that they've had to make. And so I find myself wondering very often about the people that made these quilt tops, what was their own relationship to their own homes like? And I feel that by incorporating their work into my work, it opens up a larger conversation about how, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm one person born in 1980 who made a series of decisions as they lived through their life. But that's not unique to me. We, in certain ways, we have kind of archetypal relationships to home, right? Whether we choose to stay or choose to go, choose to return or choose to stay away. So that's, to me, one of the values that these old fabrics, these old quilt tops bring into the conversation. I think also, when I, when I use the old fabrics, I think about that, um, how 
the people who we never met, they probably died, you know, long ago. And yet here we are, we're joining, we're meeting our, our stories somehow have crossed paths through this fabric and they're building on top of each other. And they're, it's so it, it's, a, it's connecting the human experience, just like what you're saying you're not the only one who's walked this path. I'm not the only one who's walked this path. But when you bring together the old with what we're doing now, we're combining that and we're, we're continuing the story. And I get excited thinking, you know, a couple generations from now, what if somebody starts dissecting the work that I've done and adding to that story? And it's just this continuation of life. It would be an honor, wouldn't it? Have somebody pick it up your work. It would be an yeah. honor. It would be a great honor. Yeah. And they are welcome to do whatever they want. Cut it up, drive over it, stain it, whatever, whatever they need to do to get it to where they want it to be. I'm just happy they decided to use it. Here's a topic I'm wondering if, if you want to talk about. Because, of course, fabric isn't the only thing that holds memory. Barns aren't the only thing that hold memory. That land itself also holds memory. Especially when you're coming from the East Coast, like you and I are, there's a long colonial history on this land. And before the colonizers came, there was a long indigenous history to this land. Is that something that factors into your your work, your process at all? Is it something you find yourself thinking about? Thinking about the, the history of the land? Mm -hmm. Hmm. That's a good question. Um... I mean, when I was digging in the backyard once, planting a garden, I pulled, I dug up an old horseshoe, broken part of a horseshoe, and that made me, you know, I knew that this had once been farmland before it was a development, and I wrestled with the fact that I moved to a development that was built on farmland, but I found out before I moved here that none of the, like, seven children wanted the land, and they wanted to, they wanted the money, so whatever. But I don't, I don't really, I mean, I connect with the land visually, like when I see the plowed fields and the lines and that sort of thing. But do you think a lot about going that far back? Yeah, I, I, I find myself puzzling on it a lot recently, especially because I, I am making this homecoming series in a county called Cherokee County. Hmm. And I'm telling my story of home and my relationship to it. And the, the privilege I've had to choose to leave and choose to come back and choose to flit around up and down the East Coast, you know. And I, I am, I'm telling this story on a land where people are forced to leave. Mm -hmm. I'm telling this story about home in someone else's home that they were forced to leave. And so I do find myself thinking about it. Um, I don't know how that informs my work. Mm -hmm. I am, I think uh, maybe there's just a certain stage I just have to be open to and aware to, and then it will surface somehow when it's the right time to, to come forth. Maybe it's a whole separate project. Maybe there's a way to incorporate it in this project. I don't know. But, you know, it's for me, it's unavoidable driving around Western North Carolina, Eastern Tennessee, and you see dozens and dozens and dozens of road signs that say Trail of Tears. Mm. Right. This is where actual 
people were forced to leave their homes down this now two-lane road that's got a Walmart on one side and Arby's on the other. You know, like, and so I, I, the, the the line is still drawn in the in the soil here, and so I just can't. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm. It's marinating. It's germinating, and it'll come to the surface when it's time. We've got a road in our town, not our town, but another town over called um, Indian Indian Town Road, and I think about that. When was that named, and who did they drive off the land to name it that? You know, I, I, it just. But yeah, it does not really factor into my work. And I will be honest, it probably doesn't because it is so overwhelmingly inconceivable. I don't know what to do with it. I don't know where to put it. And I don't know how I would express that me without seeming like I was in some way appropriating their pain instead of honoring it and but what i do feel that i can do is where i can't speak directly to that i can speak to human brokenness yeah the universal human condition mm-hmm. yeah. tell us about some of your your recent series your recent pieces of work that you're working on um, the, my recent series is I'm calling Ragged, and I wanted to I explore a lot of line and shape in my work, and I really wanted to delve more into the colors that I see around here, and I wanted to dive into the texture of, and when I say texture, I mean the, more of the feeling that I get, the rawness, the raggedness of it. So I'm I'm taking fabrics. And because all the different cloth has these different weaves to it, they're not all uniform and all the same. It's it's very um, texturally delighting, and I'm not hiding the ragged edges, the, the selvages. I want the selvages to show, and so everything about it is different than what I've been doing, and it just it feels right. Because life ain't so neat and tidy, is it? Life is not neat and tidy, no. And I'm. At my age, I am so damn tired of trying to make mine look neat and tidy. It just isn't going to get there. <laughs> I'm not one of those people. And um, it it is exhausting trying to pretend otherwise. So, yeah, let's celebrate the mess and the flaws and all of it. Victoria, I would love to hear more about what it's like for you sharing your work with thousands of people at a time online and social media. How do you maintain that balance between the Victoria who produces beautiful work and the Victoria who's not giving a damn anymore what people think? Oh gosh, that's hot. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this yeah, gets at another on that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, it gets at a conversation you and I have had before about how do we one do we need to present our whole full selves to Instagram? Maybe we don't, maybe that's not even a goal to aspire to. Two, if we're going to try to present something like our whole selves, how do we provide that context so people can fit our work into our lives? I feel no obligation 
to show all of my life to Instagram. That's, nope, don't have any obligation to do that. I'll be very honest in saying certain things. Everything that I make is not beautiful. I make tons of crap, probably more crap than more non-crap sometimes, I think. It's part of the process. It's kind of like, you know, we're so hard on ourselves when we're, and I'll get back to what you're saying, but I have this thought. We're so hard on ourselves as creative people when we make something that didn't live up to what we saw in our mind's eye, okay? Now, again, I'm going to go back to being a writer. Another thing that writers do is they make a rough draft and another, and they, they work in layers. They do not expect, if they are a seasoned writer, to write the great novel first time out running. They're going to make something with lots of warts and mistakes, and it's going to be like cringeworthy, and then they're going to refine it and refine it and refine it. And I think as creatives, we should give ourselves the same blessing and say, okay, this didn't work out, but it taught me what didn't work and hopefully will point me to what will work. Or it got this out of my system, this idea that I had, and now I can move on to the idea that really needs to be born. And then as far as social media, I want what I put on social media to be aesthetically pleasing because as an artist, I'm striving to do aesthetically pleasing things. So it does not behoove me to put something out that was not aesthetically pleasing. So I'm going to photograph it in, in the best way possible. And I'm going to present it nicely and truthfully and, and, and that. But I'm not going to blog down my social media with all the things that I made that didn't turn out just to make you feel better. Because <laughs> it's no purpose. But I will always be honest and say I make lots of, lots of crappy stuff. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. I mean, because there is this, even if our rational minds know that people are curating their work and curating their experience and curating their life for us on social media, the felt sense of scrolling through the feed is the one that lingers, right? The mm -hmm. idea that, air quotes here, everybody's out there making amazing work and I'm sitting here like being a bum. Yes. You know, like that's the, that's the thought that can often linger if we're not careful about that. If there were a camera following me around most days, you would hear me muttering to myself. You would hear me like, I'm a god, I'm a hack, I'm a husband. <laughs> I never was a husband. <laughs> I can't make anything. I don't know what I'm doing. But then I think when you're, you're, you were going to make that post, it's sort of like, okay, game on. You're walking onto the stage there. It's, it's, it's time to put your best face forward and, show what you got because that's that's what we do we're you know visual artists but it's not all pretty there's a lot of of like what you said luke says staring at at a quilt for a long period of time and people say oh your stitches they're so perfect well first of all i don't really want perfect stitches what people don't see is how many stitches i also rip out because I'm very, um, even though I want this imperfectness, I'm very anal retentive, I guess. I don't know where I, it's, it's hard for me to leave certain stitches in. And so I'm, I'm battling that with myself. I'm, I, I'm striving to be more imperfect. And 
I'm not doing a perfect job at that. Well, I'll tell you this for what it's worth, Victoria, if it helps you, that I've started doing this thing, like here, this piece I'm sewing on now, where like I do something I don't like. For example, I have a red circle here that I've applicated down with white thread, and I'm not sure I'm mm -hmm. so crazy about the white thread. Instead of ripping out right away, I'm going on to work on the rest of the piece. And if at the end of the piece, this white thread still drives me crazy, I'll take it out and fix it then. I but love nine times that. out of 10, yeah, well, nine times out of 10, what I discover is that what drives me crazy when I'm looking up close actually adds to some kind of nuance or layer or texture when you get done. It just gives me permission to, I can still make that decision, but I'm going to give myself some time and I'll start go back around to it. I'm, I'm taking that advice. I think that's great. Good teaching. Victoria, I mean, I, I feel like we're, we have circled around a number of things in this conversation. And I'm wondering if you've left us with some really good tidbits, some really good kind of rules for a living. Like, you know, you, you remind me that writers write in drafts. So visual artists should feel free to do the same. You remind me that to sew what you know, just like a writer's supposed to write what they know. I'm wondering if you have any other thoughts on if somebody came to you and said, Victoria, how can I get more meaning into my work? How can I incorporate landscape into my work or home into my work or memory into my work? I mean, we could take it a number of different directions. Do you have any other thoughts that you might offer somebody who is interested in doing that? Think of what do you feel connected to? What soothes you? What excites you? You know, for me, um, it's, it's the barns, but for somebody else, it could be dance or it could be the circus or I don't know. And then explore how could you do that? And is it, is it the emotion that you get from it? Is it the, um, are you stimulated by the color or the sound or, you know, all of it is, are there certain elements? Uh, when I like, if I think of the circus, let's say that was my go-to point. I'm going to think about the visuals. When I think of a circus, I see red and wide red and white stripes in the in the tent. How the tents come down. Uh, also, I'm thinking the smell of the hay and and the animals and um, all the people and the popcorn that's been spilled on the ground and and the trash that kind of also goes, I mean, there's all different kind of visual elements that would go into that. And then how could I communicate? What is, what is it about the circus? Do I like the bright and shiny? Do I like the performers? Do I like the kind of grunge aspect of it? Um, the, the kind of underbelly of it? What is it that I like? And how could I translate that? What kind of fabrics would communicate that? Um, what kind of, of colors would communicate that? What kind of lines and shapes could I, would I, I can't imagine wanting to do something realistic because that's not how I work. So I'm always going to go to the abstract. If, if somebody made me have an assignment where you have to do a circus quilt, I don't care that you like barns, you have to do a circus quilt. I still would have to infuse my own sensibilities into it. So I would probably think of something, some sort of old time circus from a long time ago that was done out in the farm field. And I'm going to put in maybe some dirty canvas or something because the canvas of the tent. And I'm going to find um, 
uh, a, I've got some vintage fabric with thin, almost red and white candy striped, and I'm going to do a border down on that um, because that's showing me the trim of the tape. And maybe I'm going to put a little bit of yellow in there because I kind of get the feeling that the clown is wearing yellow shoes. And uh, I'm just going to go with whatever my mind is taking me. It's sort of What's like that? word association game. And, and but you're in this game. You're just saying circus to me over and over and over again, and I've got to throw out, you know, all these different words and like, you know, and things that I'm seeing. And so just allow your mind to go, just release it. Does that make sense? Well, it, it totally makes sense. And I, I wonder, Victoria, if you would recommend that people consider making small, we'll call them sketches, right? Like if you want to make a circus quilt, maybe make a bunch of small kind of hand sized mm -hmm. pieces first where you're capturing the yellow of the clown shoes and the smell of the popcorn and the red and white stripes in different pieces just to kind of get your, your, your textile language down before attempting a large circus quilt. Definitely. And I like working in small and you don't feel like you're wasting fabric or you've committed a whole lot of time or something if you're still fleshing out an idea. So yeah, definitely. But um, and and don't feel like you have to be literal, you know. Don't feel like you've got to. You know, here's the circus tent, and here's the person walking the tight. What it's for me, it's more exciting to capture mood and feeling. And don't worry if anybody else catches it. That's the other thing. When somebody looks at one of my quilts, I don't care what they see. I don't care what their interpretation is. And I mean, and when I say I don't care, it doesn't, I don't mean that I'm not interested. Feel free to interpret it any way you want. You don't have to see or feel anything that I felt. Whatever it evokes in you is totally cool with me. And so sometimes people will look at my work and they'll say, oh, I see this or I feel that. And not, not me, but that's great that you do. So the other thing that I would say is, don't worry about other people knowing that it was a circus quilt. It doesn't matter. That's just your jumping off point of inspiration. And don't feel that you have to be beholden to it. You can take it in whatever direction you want. Have a conversation as you're working. Always stay open and have a conversation with the fabric. Ask the quilt, what do you want to be? You know, what do you want to say? I want to say this, but what do you want to say? And how can we say that together and make it work? Yeah. Victoria, I think that's a beautiful place to leave it. You got anything else you want to add? I don't think so, other than thanks so much. I really appreciate you wanting to talk a little bit more. It was fun. It has been my pleasure, and I think it's safe to speak for folks listening. It's been our pleasure, too, Victoria. Thank How's you. How's your talisman coming along this last hour? It's okay. I, it's truthfully hard for me to talk and sew at the same time. But um, we're I put I put this little piece of trim around around it. So I rolled up the fabric and then couched it down. So that's where we are. How about you? How'd you do? Well, I look forward to seeing it when you get it all done. I got a number of artificial flower petals sewn down to this feed sack. That's beautiful. It is be and it is a sack. Like you can open it up. It will be a sack. The, the side right now is split down the side so I can applique easier, but I'll sew it back up. Yeah. So, yeah. I look forward to sharing it with folks when it's done. It's going to be nice. Beautiful. It really is beautiful. Victoria, thank you so much. Thank you, Zach. 
If you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did, I'm wondering if you'll rate and review this show so other people can find Seamside and learn more about the inner work of fabric. I'd really appreciate it. And you might also be interested in checking out the zine that I make after these conversations. I sit and ruminate and reflect about different things that came up, put them into this cute little printable, foldable zine. You can stick it in your back pocket and take it anywhere. So there's a link for that in the show notes if you like. And as always, thank you for listening. I appreciate your time. You know, we'll be sitting and sewing again before too long here on Seamside. Take care. Sew something good. <laughs>